This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Well, back to school, back to scissors and scrubs. Fresh off vacation. We're all back to work. Yep. Back to school. So, are you looking at Facebook with all of the parents sending their kids back to college? Yes, it's constant. So, I see my cousin and um, I see two of my cousins, my cousin and my sister in law. And I was like, How's it going? Both of them, like, we moved them in, and the next day we get calls. They're crying. They want to come home. They, I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. She's like, oh, no, we're not going yeah. to. But I'm just laughing because, you know, you see all these pictures. They're all so happy in their dorm, and they're all calling the next day how miserable yeah. they are. Because it sucks to live in a dorm. It sucks to live Never in a dorm. Never did it. It's disgusting. I did it for one semester. I hated it. There's other people's dirt everywhere. There's other... It's... It was disgusting. What? I felt dirty the whole... Like, I never... I mean, I showered, like, twice a day. You have to wear shoes in the shower. How clean are you if you have to wear shoes in your shower? It's disgusting. I hate it. I hated it. it well, Laura, that I don't is blame exactly them. what brings us to what we're going to yes. talk about today. Dorm living Blah. and how disgusting it is. Ugh. And one of the major side effects of dorm living, meningitis. Lovely. Bum, Lovely. bum, bum, meningitis. Mm-hmm. Today's episodes are going to cover viral and bacterial meningitis. Mm-hmm. And the vaccines you can get for them, yeah. which all of a sudden in 2020 and 2021 vaccines have become the Antichrist. All of a sudden we don't want to vaccinate anybody right. for anything. Yeah. We're just going to live free or die or die. And so we're going to talk about bacterial meningitis, viral meningitis, and all that therein. Which yes. Nasty ass diseases. Yeah. So take it away. All right. I did viral meningitis. Not as exciting. Well, I just, I took the exciting one yeah. this time. <laughs> um, I got all this information from cdc.gov. Um, vi- viral meningitis is the most common type. Yes. Um, it is caused by viruses such as the enterovirus, which is like your stomach bug. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most common cause of viral meningitis. Really? Yep. Um, the mumps virus, the measles virus, the herpes virus, which includes Epstein-Barr, varicella zoster, which is your chicken pox and shingles, and herpes simplex. Again, for the 400th time, I'm going to say, doing this podcast, I learned so much because I always thought meningitis was its own virus. No. But bacterial, the same thing. Yeah. It spawns from another virus, right. which I never knew. Um, influenza virus, arboviruses, which are like West Nile viruses, mm-hmm. viruses that are carried from bugs and mosquitoes, and lymphocytic choriomeningitis virus, which I'll tell you how you get that. And it's just That sounds like something to do with the babies. No, mm-hmm. no, no. You would think, right? Yeah, no. Nope. Mm, okay. It's disgusting. It sounds disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I can't um, wait. Your face alone is telling me it's gross. Risk factors for getting viral meningitis: people at any age can develop this, mm-hmm. um, but children under five and immunocompromised people are most at risk for viral okay. for developing viral meningitis. Um, you con- contract viral meningitis by coming in close contact with someone with vir- viral meningitis, although. Only a small m- number of people infected with the virus will end up getting viral meningitis. Okay. So if I had viral meningitis and I was sharing a drink with you and blah, blah, blah and I got you sick the next sick, day. but I would. You, you might get the bug that is the virus that mm-hmm. I have, but you will probably not develop the meningitis. Because I'm wicked strong <laughs> with my immune system. So that's, you can get it that way, but it's very, you don't usually convert to the meningitis okay. if you get it. Um, 
How do you get enteroviruses? I'd love to know. Enteroviruses spread through feces, eye, nose, and mouth secretions, and blister fluid, which I had no idea. That's gross. Did you know your enteroviruses lived in your blister fluid? No. I why am I even to... touching or drinking or being anywhere near somebody's supposed to know? That's it's so gross. gross. Um, <laughs> so you get enterovirus by coming in close contact, like shaking hands with an infected person. Who's drinking... got a ruptured blister on their hand. But yeah. Imagine. <laughs> drinking water that has the virus in it, changing someone's diaper that's infected, and then touching your eyes, nose, and mouth before washing your hands. Why? If you're changing a diaper, would you ever do that? Because you're, you're I don't know. I don't either. Sleep deprived, maybe? I don't You're know. not educated. I don't know. Um, or touching an object that an infected person touched and then touching your eyes, nose, or mouth before washing hands. So key key here, wash your goddamn hands yeah. and stop touching your fucking faces. <laughs> God almighty. Stop touching your fucking faces. Stop touching. Um, so the measles, mumps, herpes, influenza, they're all kind of spread the same way. It's spread through saliva and respiratory droplets. So it can spread by coughing, sneezing, talking, sharing cups, food, and by playing sports, dancing, kissing, mm-hmm. like anything that you're going to be breathing near somebody that has yeah, this. you know, you're brushing your teeth in the dorm next to 40 other people who are brushing <laughs> their teeth <laughs> in the dorm and yeah. mm-hmm. you're all it's sharing disgusting. cups because you're in this little tiny room. And you're in like frat you... parties where you're just drinking out of what God the knows toilet. what. And, yeah. yeah. And then kissing some random dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Arboviruses are spread through bug bites, especially mosquitoes. Oh, those squeaks. Um, Lymphocytic choreomeningitis is spread by coming in contact with fresh urine, dropping saliva, or (laughs) nesting materials of infected rodents. (laughs) That includes your household goddamn hamsters and whatever else rodents Uh, you keep as pets, which is disgusting. And then you take them out with your hands and you, you you grab them out of all that nesting material and that has all the poop and pee and in it. they're covered in their own poop and pee. They're covered in their own poop and pee. You're holding them in your face. It's disgusting. <laughs> I you could see her face. Don't this. get rodents as pets. It's I disgusting. I didn't think this episode was going to be as disgusting as it is. I'm yeah, not going to lie. It's nasty. Don't get rodents as pets. Um, oh, God. I, I can't. I don't <laughs> So symptoms of viral meningitis. I'd love to know them after we've gone through all the disgusting ways you can get it. In babies, it will present as fever, irritability, Poor eating, sleepiness, or trouble waking in lethargy. Isn't that literally every fucking Pretty thing much, baby does? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, in children and adults, they get a fever, a headache, a stiff neck. The stiff neck is you, classic. Classic. And you can't put your chin to your chest. I remember um, Jack always has had wicked headaches. And once in a while, he'd get a fever with it, or Sam would get a fever and a headache, and I'd say, put your chin to your chest. And they're like, what? I'm like, put your chin to your chest. And they'd be like, okay. And I'm like, you can do that? And they're like, yep. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, that well, it's is, not meningitis. Right. You it can could be do, anything else, but it's not meningitis. It's not a stiff... You can move your head side to side. You can tilt it back. It's Those are all fine. It's the chin to the chest. Because meningitis, real quick, the term meningitis is the inflammation of oh, the, the tissue surrounding the, the brain and the spinal cord. Yes. So when they get inflamed, as you can imagine, because it's covering your nervous system, everything goes haywire. And so if your spinal cord's inflamed, you can't bend it, yeah. it to touch your chin to your neck. It hurts. It hurts a lot. Um. Yeah, I had that written and then I, I rewrote this and then I yeah, didn't no, put I that in apparently. Too, so we'll probably cover it again because God forbid I go off script. So. Um. All right. Stiff neck. For children and adults, photophobia, which is like your, it's really hard to look, look at, at lights, light. um, sleepiness, nausea, irritability, vomiting, lack of appetite, and lethargy. Most people recover in seven to ten days. For viral. 
from viral meningitis with really no treatments. So, and again, like, I mean, not that we have to explain it, but we're going to. Viral is, it's a virus, which mm-hmm. are different than bacteria. Viruses reproduce through your cells, through the RNA and stuff. So they're fought differently than bacteria, which just makes more of itself. Yes. Your little colonies of your body. Blech. Colonies and bacteria. Ugh, yes. Um, how do you diagnose viral meningitis? They might swab your nose or throat. They'll take stool samples. They'll take blood samples and they will take a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture. So they're swabbing you and taking these samples to see what virus you have in you because mm-hmm. you have one of these enteroviruses or that's flu or herpes. That's, that's causing it. you a lovely viral meningitis. Yes. Um, the treatment for viral meningitis. You treat the symptoms. So you have a headache, you have a fever, you take Tylenol. You, you know, you, you're just treating the symptoms here. Some people who have it because of influenza or herpes can receive antivirals because there are actually antiviral drugs for some of these, mm-hmm. but most viruses do not have antiviral yeah. drugs. You have to let them run their course. Yep. Um, obviously, um, babies get sick, really sick from this because they're so lethargic, they won't eat, so they get um, they dehydrated, they get weak, they get sick, and obviously immunocompromised people, any virus you get is going to go haywire, so they, they might need IV fluids mm-hmm. and further treatments. Um. So prevention for viral meningitis. So I'm going to go into vaccines later, but there's no vaccines for the enteroviruses, which are the most common cause of viral meningitis. Mm-hmm. So to prevent those, wash your goddamn hands. <coughs> Literally wash your hands. Um, avoid... We could prevent a lot of stuff if everybody just... your hands. I'm still this day and age watching people go to the bathroom and, and walk not out wash their hands. It's disgusting. Hands. Yeah. Um, avoid close contact with people who are ill. Clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces, high touch areas, high touch areas. And now I think with um, <laughs> As I'm COVID, touching my face. <laughs> I know. I think with COVID now, though, like people, that's like a common thing now. That's a high touch area. You got to really clean that. That's a high touch area. Like anything you touch it on, your counters, your fridge, your doorknobs. Yeah. Wash them down. Like yeah. clean stuff. Um, and stay home when you are sick and keep your kids home mm-hmm. when they are sick. Do mm-hmm. not send them. If they don't feel good, stay home. Yeah. Um, Avoid bug bites. Use bug spray. How do you avoid bug bites? Use like bug you don't spray. Even see it, I, I mean... know. Long pants and long shirts if you're out camping at right. night. You like, know, it's not anything like I see those fuckers coming. My cousin wears like net pants, like over her shorts. That's actually a good idea. She because she gets like when she gets bit by a mosquito, it's Hyper like bit, a, yeah. oh my god, the welts That's in her son really gets the same idea, thing. Though. So they wear these like because it's hot. Like you're out camping in like pants. August, but it's like net net pants that you just put over your shorts, so it still gets the air in. Yeah, it still lets the air in, but they're not getting bitten I would by bugs. Covered head to toe in it. Yeah, it's they're bizarre, but they work <laughs> apparently. Um, but that's to prevent all that lymphocytic yeah. choreo meningitis. Um, control your rodents. <laughs> Clean using proper techniques when they're in your home. So if you have don't it, have them in your home. Don't a don't have them as unless pets, you know they're right like there. mice, and then you're gonna kill them anyway. Right. And so if you if they're your pets, make sure when you're cleaning you're wearing gloves. You're discarding the stuff properly pro- properly. Rodents There's all are vectors of infection. Oh my god, they, they carry everything. Carry everything. So follow like proper cleaning techniques yeah. when you're cleaning up after rodents. If you have an infestation in your house, get somebody in there to clean it properly. Don't just sweep the mouse poop because yeah. that's just gonna get it in the air, you're gonna breathe it yeah. in. There's a certain way to clean up after rodents. I'm not going through it, but look it up. It's ugh. And get vaccinated against influenza, measles, mumps, and chickenpox. If you get vaccinated against these, mm-hmm. you can't get them. You can write and to then me all day long, get it. and I will never not defend vaccines. Right? Sorry. No. Sorry. If you if you just get those vaccines, you can't get those viruses. Yeah. So, 
It's great. Yep. It's amazing what those vaccines can do. Um, and that's pretty much viral meningitis. Oh, viral meningitis. You, you usually recover about a week or so. Let it run its course like yep. most viruses. Well, Laura, continuing mm-hmm. on the CDC thread, okay. we're going to go to viral meningitis's like nasty-ass cousin. Yeah. Living in deep in that country, it's Ooh. bacterial meningitis. Yes. This shit's no joke. It's no joke. Nope. And it comes on quick and it kills quick. Mm-hmm. So bacterial meningitis, I explained earlier, it's the inflammation because I don't want to go off script. No. You know, it's early in the morning. Mike's back on his suck-ass schedule that I hate, which means we're recording this at 10 o'clock in the morning on Awful. a Sunday. Who records at 10 o'clock in the morning? It's terrible. Mike. So I can't go off script, so you're going to hear it again. All right. So it's an inflammation of the membranes that protect the brain and spinal cord, like I said. Mm-hmm. And there are several types of bacterial mm-hmm. meningitis because like viral meningitis, it is spawning from another um, infection. infection, another bacteria, mm-hmm. actually. So we have streptococcus pneumonia, bacterial meningitis. Group B strep, bacterial meningitis. Neisseria meningitis, TB meningitis, mm. Haemophilus influenza, H. influenza, mm-hmm. Listeria monocytogenes, and E. coli meningitis. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Many of them can lead to serious infection and death, and concur- and death can occur in just about a few hours. Mm-hmm. The mortality rate for somebody infected with bacterial meningitis is as high as... 10 to 20 percent with treatment jesus survivors may have major um, issues after the illness like loss of limbs deafness seizures brain damage and learning disabilities mm. so when we're talking more about colleges we're talking more about the um zero group b meningococcal mm-hmm. it accounts for more than half the cases among 16 to 20 year olds which is late high school college age mm-hmm. The bacterial meningitis uh, that affects... I'm going to get into the types and the age groups they affect. I'll get into other stuff, and then I'll go back to the bacterial meningitis. It's kind of all over the place, okay? So, newborns are prone to group B, S pneumonia, the listeria... I'm just going to call it the listeria because I can't even pronounce the last part of that one. And E. coli. Babies and young children are susceptible to S pneumonia. The Neisseri meningitis, H influenza, the group B, and the TB one. Teens and young adults are the Neisseria meningitis and the pneumonia one. I'm, I mean, these words, Latin, really? It's, Didn't it's they know constant. it was going to be a dead language? I don't language? know why. I mean... So when I keep abbreviating, it's because I can't say it. So older adults, we have the S pneumonia, we have the meningitis, uh, Neisseria meningitis, the H influenza, the group B, and the um, Listeria one. So... Risk factors are um, age, uh, the age babies are at an increased risk for bacterial meningitis compared to people in other age groups. However, people any age can develop bacterial meningitis. Mm-hmm. A group setting, infectious disease tends to spread where large groups of people gather. For example, college campuses. <laughs> they report outbreaks of men- meningococcal disease caused by the end meningitis. So as you know, people living in little tight spaces... It's disgusting. You're going to get meningitis. And they don't know how to clean. And they don't know how to clean. And they're all like, you know, you're just trying to fit in and everything. So somebody's like, here, use my toothbrush. You're like, okay. And you just, you know. Certain medical conditions, medications, and surgical procedures put people at an increased risk for meningitis. For example, having an HIV infection or a 
uh, CSF leak, cerebral fluid leak. It's too early to come up with these words. <laughs> and not having a spleen can increase a person's risk for several types of bacterial meningitis. Mm-hmm. Working with meningitis-causing pathogens. Mm-hmm. Microbiologists routinely exposed to meningitis-causing bacteria are at an increased risk. I bet. I would think so. Geez, if I'm working with AIDS, I'm probably going to get AIDS. Mm-hmm. Travelers may be more, uh, maybe at an increased risk from the... Um, meningococcal disease caused by the end meningitis if they travel to certain places such as again we're back in sub-saharan africa no oh. i don't think i want to go back no, to sub-saharan africa there. particularly during the dry season mm. <laughs> um mecca during the annual haji and umrah pilgrimage i know i did not say those wrong it's probably there's just so many people there yes i would think in many cultures tb is a much more com is much more common than the united states so travelers should avoid close contact or prolonged time with TB patients. Don't go to those sanitariums. No. You know, visit your friends. Okay. How does it spread? Well, comma, certain germs that cause bacterial meningitis, such as the Listeria one, can spread through food. So Listeria is also the bacteria that pregnant women have to watch out for. It's the one that's in uncooked veggies mm-hmm. and stuff. It can be in your cold cuts. Didn't stop me from eating subs. No, Italian subs. Oh, oh my Do I love subs. those? Mm-hmm. Um, but most of these germs spread from one person to another. They spread it depends on the type of bacteria. It's also important to know that people can have these bacteria in or on their bodies without being sick. So mm-hmm. like strep B, pneumococcal, I think it is, strep mm-hmm. B, pneumococcal, whatever that one is, the one that gives you strep throat, that gives you major Yeah, infections. you can just have it. It lives on your skin. Yeah. And the problem is, is when it goes from your skin into your bloodstream somehow, it's like deadly when it gets in you. But and it, sometimes like they'll... I know there's been things in the operating room, like not our, op- but in other yeah. operating rooms, where there's been u- outbreaks of strep right. in patients, and they have to go around and they test the OR staff. Oh, because someone yeah. is a carrier, yeah, and they don't know, and they're giving it like a lot of that flesh-eating bacteria, the um, necrotizing fasciitis. Mm-hmm. It's strep B that was introduced through like a surgical incision, yeah. and went haywire in there. It's not an, it's not a nice bacteria, but mm-hmm. our skin can deal with it. All right, where did I uh, leave off there? Okay. So some people can carry it and not get sick, and they're known as carriers. Mm. Most carriers never become sick, but can still spread the bacteria to others. Most common example of how people spread each type of bacteria. All right, yes, I am reading from a sheet of paper, so don't judge, okay? Because it was just too long to write. Group B, strep and E. coli. Mothers can pass these bacteria to their babies during birth. H influenza, tuberculosis, S pneumonia, they spread the uh, people spread this by coughing and sneezing while in close contact to others who breathe in the bacteria. So I'm laying in bed, I'm hawking up a loogie, and my roommate's two feet away from me. Mm-hmm. And meningitis. People spread these bacteria by sharing respiratory throat secretions, saliva, or spit. Again, I'm coughing in my dorm room that's the size of my closet. I don't want to share And there's four of us in there. Anybody. Exactly. That sounds so. This typically occurs during close coughing or kissing or lengthy living together contact mm-hmm. like any dorm mm-hmm. equali people get these bacteria as we all know through poop which may be prepared by people who did not wash their food which is prepared by people who did not wash their hands well after using the toilet oh. it all goes back to um typhoid mary you know cooking for everybody yeah. wasn't washing her hands yeah. before she was making up that peach sorbet yeah. um so people who get the E. coli and the listeria are getting that from the contaminated food. Okay. Signs and symptoms thereof meningitis. I'm making sure I didn't overshoot what I was supposed to be reading. 
Okay. So, signs and symptoms are fever, headache, and stiff neck. It's very almost identical yeah. to viral. So, the only way they're going to know is when they do a spinal tap. Uh, other symptoms are nausea, vomiting, photophobia, altered mental status. So, when your nervous system is jacked up because it's sick, you can't look at light. It's going to mm -hmm. hurt everything. Um, you're slower and active. You're irritable. You vomit. You feed poorly. You have bulging fontanelles if you're a little tiny baby. And you have abnormal reflexes. If you think your baby or child has any of these symptoms, immediately go to the mm -hmm. emergency room. Uh, typical symptoms of bacterial meningitis develop three to seven days after exposure. Uh, it's not the rule for TB meningitis, which can happen way later. And people with bacterial meningitis can start having seizures. They can go into a coma and die. And, and this is like bold. So for the CDC to put a bold... Anyone who thinks they may have meningitis should see a doctor as soon as possible. Bump, bump, bump. Mm -hmm. So why do we talk about this today? Well, we talk about it because kids are going back to college. Everybody's moving back in. And there are, Laura's going to get into it, there are um, vaccines for these. And mm -hmm. you have to make sure you get the right vaccine and you have to make sure you get the doses you need for that. So according to a 2000 CDC study, college freshmen are seven times more likely to get meningitis than other college students. Mm. And I would assume because after you've been living in this filth for a while, you're building up antibodies to it. It's an even higher risk for those living in dorms. It occurred 9 to 23 times more frequent in students living in dorms over those who were living in other accommodations. Wow. Why, Laura? Because there's a well, million of them packed in there? Because like of sardines. how it spread. Exactly. It requires shared respiratory and throat secretions. So when you're at the frat parties and everybody's sipping from the same fucking punch bowl and moving cups around, you're drunk, and then you're making up with the guy next door, and then you go home and you're hacking it up in your dorm room and your friggin' dorm person's up in your bunk bed above you. Mm -hmm. It's really disgusting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Close and lengthy contact is generally considered necessary. Dr. Sanhar, there's a doctor. She's quoted, when you are in a situation with a whole bunch of people who are sharing items like cups, water bottles, lipsticks, lipsticks, mm -hmm. or engaged in unhygienic behavior, I don't want to know what that could be, it magnifies the risk. Roughly one in ten people can be carriers of N meningitis and have no symptoms, being unknown carriers. Hmm. Okay. So the meningitis that specifically hits the college students is the end meningitis and it can start like the flu but it gets worse pretty quick quick um we already went through what meningitis is it if what happens is the meningococcal bacteria enters the bloodstream and it reproduces and it starts causing damage to the blood vessel walls mm -hmm. this leads to bleeding into the skin and organs which means you'll get severe pain and a lot of them have a dark purple rash mm -hmm. associated with it if the doctor is suspecting meningitis, um, they're going to take your blood and they're going to do um, cerebrospinal fluid samples, which is a spinal tap, to find the specific meningitis that you have. Treatment is to get on antibiotics ASAP, 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 mm -hmm. ASAP. So now I'm going to discuss a couple of statistics of people who had said bacterial meningitis. Okay. okay. In 2013 to 2016, five college campuses experienced outbreaks of the serogroup B meningococcal disease. Santa Clara University, three cases of, um, I'm just going to say bacterial meningitis because mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into it, occurred at the university from January to February. University of Oregon, seven cases. A 
occurred at the university. One student died. Providence College, two cases of the um, bacterial meningitis occurred within a week of the Providence College in early February of 2015. All the students survived and there have been no further cases, potentially due to rapid action taken by the college to get the students vaccinated quickly. Yeah. Princeton University, which I'm going to elaborate a little more. Here, Princeton University, nine cases of the um, meningitis occurred and were associated to an outbreak at Princeton University from March 2013 through March 2014. So in like one year, nine cases came mm-hmm. out. That is, so I kind of talk about that briefly in this one as well. Um, it was serotype B meningococcal. Uh, it led to the health department stopping in and starting vaccinations on the campus immediately. Yeah. So in March of 2014, Stephanie Ross, who is a 19-year-old from Drexel University, she um, contacts it and she dies. She mm-hmm. gets it from a kid at Princeton and she dies. And they were able to, through blood samples, link it. It's the exact same type of bacteria that was being spread at Princeton. Uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, four cases of meningitis occurred in one month at the university in late 2013. They were connected to one that had occurred on the campus seven months earlier. So wow, it hung like around it for, yeah, so yeah. somebody carried that around for seven months. All of the stu- students survived. One male lacrosse player had to have both feet amputated. Ugh. All universities held emergency clinics to administer the vaccine to all undergraduate students and certain graduate students and faculty to help stop the outbreak. In 2015, outbreaks occurred just months after the U.S. Food, Drug, and Administration approved two vaccines to protect against it. Um, That was the Providence College and the University College. In Princeton, it got into how the vaccines they were giving weren't helping, so they had to import a vaccine from Europe that they were using, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't tested. But I didn't really want to get into that. Yeah. Um, Then it said in 2008 through 2011, there were more outbreaks in college campuses and then it gets into the things. So, I have multiple stories of bacterial meningitis. Okay. Do you want to get into your vaccine yeah, I'll do and the stuff first? That? Yeah. So, um, there is not a vaccine for viral meningitis because it's a different beast. Mm-hmm. There is a, a vaccine for bacterial meningitis. There are actually two available in the U.S. God help me with these words. <laughs> so, there's a meningococcal conjugate. And it's a longer name, but I'm just mm-hmm. leaving it at that. Meningococcal conjugate, um, which protects against serogroups A, C, W, and Y. So there's different serogroups mm-hmm. for all these um, meningitises. Um, so the conjugate protects against A, C, W, and Y. Then there's serogroup B meningococcal vaccines, which protect against those and serogroup B. The CDC recommends the conjugate vaccine for all preteens and teens 11 to 12 years old with the booster at 16. I think my kids have had it. Um, So you get it. You get the shots between 11 and 12 and then a booster at 16. And that booster at 16 is critical in maintaining protection, especially because you're getting to be 16. That age where you're sharing everything. You're going to live at college. Mm -hmm. You're going to live in Mm -hmm. groups. You need that booster at 16 to continue the protection. And they also recommend the conjugate vaccines for children and adults at increased risk from meningococcal disease. Um, the conjugate is also recommended for children two months to 10 years old with HIV, um, complement component deficiency, 
I don't even know what that is. I don't. If they're taking um, complement inhibitors, if they have a damaged or no spleen, if they're traveling or live in countries where the disease is common. Mm-hmm. So two, two months to 10 years old will get the conjugate vaccine if they have any of those risk factors. Then the serogroup B vaccine is two doses between the ages of 16 and 23 for non-high-risk people. Um, they can, you can be given the serogroup B in two to three doses. Um, and you have to make sure you get all the doses. You yes. can't half-ass a vaccine. Because it won't work. Right. Um, so you can, you can be given the vaccine, the serogroup B vaccine in two to three doses for 10 years old or okay. up all right. if you are high risk. So you get it two months to 10 years, you get the, mm-hmm. the, Conjugate one if you're high risk, and then ten years up you get the sero B mm-hmm. if you're high risk. Um, the sero B vaccine can be given to anyone, but it is recommended especially for people with rare immune disorder called the complement component deficiency. It's this really rare disease, but if you have it, you should get the sero B mm-hmm. vaccine. Um, if you're taking meds called complement inhibitors, so it's the same kind of list as the two month to ten year olds have no spleen or your damaged spleen. If you are a microbiologist routinely exposed to the um, N meningitis or a part of a population identified to be at increased risk because of a serogroup B meningococcal disease outbreak. So if you were at college, there's this serogroup B outbreak. You are going to get this serogroup B um, vaccine. So the thing is to, um, of course, I'm losing my train of thought here. What I was going to say. Oh, when you hear these stories of what these people go through. Get these vaccines. Yes, it's not worth. And and most of these stories are earlier in the two thousands because we've been vaccinating now. Right. So you're not seeing these outbreaks. Of I was going to say that. On campus. You used to hear about it every year, All every the time. fall. All high schools yep. with the football teams or the soccer teams, they share the water bottles. They yep. would be an outbreak of thing. You would hear these all the time. These kids are sick. They're you sick and they limbs. die. I mean, they, you die. They name them exactly. It's, it's a life changing so illness. It's another example towards science of how these vaccines work. Right. And, um, like I have quite a few stories and all of them are taking place before 2015. So I know my pediatrician has been pushing it recently. When I say recently, so probably about 2015, yeah. like make sure you get your kids vaccinated. Whatever she recommends, I do it. I don't clearly vaccinate my kids with ridiculous stuff. I wouldn't be like, oh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. If you, if I, I wouldn't want to see my kid on a respirator with black hands and black feet no. Because of bacterial meningitis, when I could have stopped it. Right. Okay. In so. the in the you, you ver- it used to be every fall you would mm-hmm. hear of an outbreak, and mm-hmm. now, knock on wood, you it's, don't. Yes, because you haven't been hearing it because of the, of the vaccines have been up. Exactly. So then I went into the um, how you mentioned the hands and feet turn black. Mm-hmm. We didn't really go into that. So it's meningococcal septicemia. In severe. Cases of bacterial meningitis, you can get meningococcal septicemia. Mm-hmm. Um, and septicemia is blood poisoning. Mm-hmm. And it's caused by tons of bacteria multiplying in your blood. That bacteria just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And, multiplies. and it gets thick. Yes. And a person is so ill um, when they have septicemia because they are fighting the bacteria they've had 
And now it's multiplying by like the gazillions. And they can't keep up. And it's releasing all these toxins. So every time that multiplies, you release it's releasing more and more toxins to your body. It's fighting the bacteria. It's fighting the toxins. Mm-hmm. It's fighting the multiplication. You are dying when you have septicemia. Yep. Your body can only do so much. Yeah. You never want to hear that your patient septic. is septic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a fight. septic happens in the blink of an eye. Oh my God. They they're go fine, from, fine, fine, and crump. Then they're septic. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as somebody's like, oh, my mom's in the hospital and she's septic. And I'm like, mm, she's fucked. Yeah. And I just leave. I don't say that to them, but in my head, I'm like, oh, she's, she's I'll get my wake It's up a long, ready. it's a long fight for them. And the older you are, the yeah. harder it's going to be. And the less likelihood is you're going to fight sepsis. Right. It's because so, you it's have bad. to. It's really bad. That's all your body's doing is fighting. Yeah. Um. So... Like you had said, the toxins that these bacteria are releasing attack the lining of the blood vessels, so the blood vessels start to leak. Um, and that's what causes that septicemia rash, mm-hmm. which is like Purplish, purple. Almost looks like libidity. Mm-hmm. Um, which can develop into large purple areas of the skin. And that's never good to see because you mm-hmm. know that skin's not getting any nutrients or Things oxygen. aren't working the way they're supposed right. to be. And because you're leaking blood, your body decides, what do I have to do? I'm leaking blood. I have to make clots. Yes. So it, so your body starts making clots to stop the bleeding, which it's not going to do because the mm-hmm. lining is leaking. Um, and then the clots make it even harder to get oxygenated blood through your, right. out your body because it's now clogging up these vessels. Right. So um, your body's going crazy. It knows you're not pumping enough oxygenated blood to keep everything alive. Doesn't know why. It just knows it's not working. Right. It's leaking. It's clotting. It doesn't <laughs> what know what the hell's doing. going on here. But it can't get the oxygenated blood everywhere it needs to go. So your body shunts the blood. And your body's going to shunt important. your blood to your heart, your lungs, your brain, your gut. It's not going to send the blood. It's going to sacrifice your limbs. It's not going to send your blood to the skin or your limbs. Right. You're going to get cool. Your limbs are going to get no um, circulation. Your extremities and your skin are your least of your worries. Mm-hmm. Um, if your extremities and skin are not getting blood, they are not getting oxygen. Without oxygen, they you die. die. So You see your body do this yeah. when it's frostbite you see your body do this in heat exhaustion mm-hmm. you're not sweating anymore you're cooling because yeah. it's shunting trying to keep everything everything alive it's amazing what your body does to save itself right and it's saying i don't give a shit about my hand yeah. i don't need, I need my to brain be, to work i can so. just be a torso so i'll be fine right um in bacterial meningitis it is pretty commonplace to see blackened fingers toes hands feet and even arms and legs mm-hmm. um because your body is trying to you're just trying to stay alive it's sacrificing everything else um so they treat you for septicemia immediately. You have IV antibiotics. You have a central line that goes right to your heart. Yep. It pumps that antibiotics right through you um, to stop the septicemia. Once you're stable and the septicemia is under control, then they will deal with your limbs. Your limbs. Um, Which is usually the, not the result you want them to do. Right. Um, and the tissue damage. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the amount of tissue damage. It depends on... The area of the tissue damage, if it's just your fingertips, they can take just your fingertips. If it's just one finger, they take just one finger. They take as little as tissue possible. off as possible. They'll start with the debris. they do everything to save, save the limb. First. People yeah. think, oh, they just want to cut. No, they don't. They no. will do vascular work. They'll do yeah. all this stuff trying to reperfuse. And But once your skin's black, there's no coming back. No, it's not getting better. Right. So whatever's block is going. Right. And they, but they try and they'll keep it. So it's going to be a lot of surgery. It's yes. not going to be one. One. It's going to be, okay, well, it's okay. Her right index finger is down to the first knuckle. We'll yeah. just take it to there. And then they'll watch it for a little while. I'm like, uh, nope, okay. that other tissue right behind it's dead. We got to take that too. So they're going to 
piece it. They're going to piece it, but they're doing that to save as much tissue as, as possible. Um, obviously, people have, it's, you know, you can have part of your calf removed, but mm. the rest of your leg is still, it just depends on what dam- tissue is damaged. You don't know till the end. You're they, literally lucky to be alive. Yeah. And they're going to, they can't leave dead or dying tissue because that also releases toxins yes. that makes you sick and kills yes. you. So it's a it's a fine line it's a they have to lose walk. situation. Right. <laughs> um, after amputations, obviously you'll need even if it's just your pinky finger, you need PT, you need OT, you need splints, you need mm-hmm. you know you get contractures when your tissue has died because you're trying to you're holding yeah. it in positions that's comfortable, but that's not best for your limb. Right. If you're holding your elbow at a ninety degree angle, and then you can't forever. You can't straighten it out. So right. you have splints, you have PT, you have OT, you have to do it at home. This happens a lot to little kids. And then they go home and this, oh, it hurts. I don't want to do it. You have to do it with them right. and you have to come up. You know, OT can give you games to do with them so right. they can move it a certain way. But you you have to do the work so you're not crippled. Crippled. Um, I mean, they had a girl who had bacterial meningitis. She lost both arms and both legs. And she was swimming the English Channel. Yeah, it's I unreal. Like, Holy shit. Yeah. Um, obviously you have, there's reconstructive surgery you can have, there's prosthetics available. There's a lot of work now with limbs. Yes. And, and even the plastic surgeons come in and as much as I love to shit on them, reconstructive plastic surgeons, they're amazing how they can fix deformities and make you feel more comfortable and more normal. Yeah. I, you know, people hate to use that word. It's a word. Normal. Yeah. Um, we, my sister, when she was a teenager, knew this kid. He, they dared him to drink the bong water. The pond water? Bong. A bong. <laughs> Which everybody's <laughs> smoking. And, you know, and like, I mean, it's full of coming shit. out of everybody's yep. It's, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks if you drink the bong water. It's probably high if you drink the right. bong water, but, ugh. And he did it. And he got Sorry. bacterial meningitis. <gasps> he lost both his arms and his legs. Oh, my God. It was awful. And I just, I think of, I don't know why, like, randomly, I will think of that kid. I didn't know one, but wow! My, and I just think so. Oh don't my God, drink can you the bong water. Don't drink anything that's standing. It has bacteria in it. Any still anything water. That eight people have been sucking yeah. out of. I just, but it's just, it's a terrible. I mean, he's like, he's like, he's alive. He but lost his got, limbs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, it was awful. What awful, just t- terrible. Are you? Uh, I have the lumbar puncture. Okay. And then you want to do the stories? Yeah. Yep. All right. Um. So I got. Oh, I got that information about. The septicemia from meninge- meningitisnow.org. Meningitis now. Mm-hmm. And then I got information about the lumbar puncture from mayoclinic.org. So a lumbar puncture is a spinal tap. It's the same thing. People call it different names. It's perfor- performed to diagnose diseases of the central nervous system. So anything of your brain or your spine. Because your meninges are floating in fluid. There's fluid constantly going in its... Um, its own control, like you, it's a closed system. It's a closed system. Your spinal cord and your brain have the cerebral spinal fluid floating through it, and it's nutrients. It's and all it kinds buffers, of stuff, and, and, yeah, and it only is in your meninges, so you can only get it through a spinal tap or getting into the head. If right. you're leaking it anywhere else, you have a problem. Right. Um, a lumbar puncture may be done to a collect <laughs> cerebrospinal fluid for lab analysis. B measure the pressure of your cerebrospinal fluid. C, inject spinal anesthetics, chemo, or other meds. And D, um, inject dye for diagnostic images of the fluid's flow. So mm-hmm. if you need it, if you feel like, eh, there's not enough fluid in there, yeah. what's going on? Or we have a leak and we don't know where it is. Right. 
Um, the info gathered from um, lumbar punctures, I'm going to say LPs, mm-hmm. um, just to show it, can help diagnose, one, serious bacterial, fungal, or viral infections, including meningitis and syphilis. Mm-hmm. Um, syphilis? T- yeah, you can, that's oh, how they diagnose that. that. Um, two, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Three, certain cancers. And four, inflammatory conditions like Guillain-Barre and multiple sclerosis. Oh, look at I that. I didn't know that either. Um, the risks of a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture are spinal headache. About 25% of patients will develop this headache after because of um, a fluid leak. It starts a couple hours to two days after the puncture. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have nausea and vomiting from it. It's a severe headache. But it subsides when you're laying flat. Right. So that's how you usually know the difference between I have a headache. And I have an ACL or I have a, <laughs> right, I have a spinal headache. Um, you can also get back pain or discomfort. You can have bleeding. You, This is very rare. Don't not have a lumbar puncture because of it. But you can also have a brainstem herniation. Oh, that would be pretty bad. Very, very rare. That would be pretty bad. Um, but a so brainstem herniation, we talk about in our marathon episode. Yeah. It's when your brain comes through the hole at the base of your head where the spinal cord connects. And it And all dies, your life-saving much. part yeah. of your body, everything, it's controlled at the base of your spine. So if your base is going through the hole, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. That's a herniation. It's a very emergent situation. Yes. Um, so you have increased pressure within the skull. If you have like a brain tumor or a space occupying lesion, which can lead to compression of the brainstem after the CSF is removed. Got so it. you're removing that fluid. It's, so it's floating. So it's, it makes everything push down yeah. on the brainstem. Normally, if they were thinking you had a tumor or a lesion, they're doing a CAT scan before right. they know what's there. This I'll is be a- honest with you. If I have a big brain lesion, it's going to kill me. Carniate me and get it all over. Oh, there. God. Um. But anyway, very, very rare. Not going to happen to somebody that's going in right. probably for bacterial for, meningitis. Yeah, exactly. You have other problems to worry about. Right. So, okay. So, you need an LP, right? Yep. I I have a... my I can't touch my chin to my chest. I got to go get an LP. <laughs> my toes have gone black. Yeah. Um, your doctor's going to ask you if you're taking any blood thinners because you don't want to push that needle through into your spine and cause and bleeding, bleeding. Yeah. into them. Um, if you take any bleed... If you have any bleeding disorders, if you take any over-the-counters like ibuprofen, aspirin, Aleve, because those can all make mm-hmm. you bleed. Um, they may get an MRI or a CAT scan to make sure you don't have any serious thing going on in your brain, like these tumors that I just mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, then you're probably going to get changed into a hospital gown. You could leave your own clothes on. They probably well, have you changed really open back. Um, you'll either lay on your side and curl up, like curl your knees into your chest, or sit and lean forward onto like a stable surface, like a table. And you drop your shoulders round your back. The woman who's given birth knows this position because yeah. that's how you get your epidural. Um, these positions flex your back and open up the spaces between like your cat. vertebrae. Like a scared yeah. cat. Do it like a scared cat. That's what we used to say. Yep. Hold your back like you're a scared cat. I still say that now in some of the new <laughs> residents like, that are doing it. like, oh, I've never heard that. I'm like, what? Are you kidding what? me? It's like an angry like, cat. Haven't worked I say with an my... angry cat because I hate them, but I don't say scared. scared. Cat. Mm. I say, mm-hmm. you know, arch your back like an angry cat. Like, oh, all right. You know what that looks like. Yeah. You can do it. Um, like your Halloween cat. Yeah, so that opens up the spaces so they can get the needle in easier. So your lower back it is always then, asks for the attending to do it. Yeah. <laughs> your lower back is then washed, cleansed with like, you know, a, a prep stick like or a an iodine, a betadine. Yeah. Um, and then a sterile drape is placed on your back. This is done sterilely. You don't want to in- invite any infection into the... <laughs> Come on in! We're having uh, a party in so. here! Let's go! The doctor will then inject like a Novocaine into your lower back to numb the puncture site. It's just a small site yeah. 
Um, it will sting for a few seconds. It's a pinch and a burn. It's pinch a and a burn. Sting. Oh yeah. no, we're not supposed to say sting anymore. You can't it's say burn. Spicy. We're you not can't supposed say to use sting. negative connotations. I'm like, it stings. It doesn't yeah. feel. Well, I said that. To him. I'm like, don't tell me it's spicy. It hurts. Okay. I don't lie to my patients. No, it's gonna hurt. Yeah, but it'll but be, you'll over be over in a minute. Yeah. yeah. And then it's like spicy. when they give um, the propofol when you're going to sleep, mm-hmm. it burns. Yes. Have you had it? I have. It burns. But you know what? I'm the kind of person. I was also in excruciating labor. I internalize. I just am like, mm. and then you have other patients who are like, oh my God. No. I'm like, you're going to be asleep in 10 seconds. I like, didn't, yeah, but I was 15, having surgery. I go to sleep. They don't tell me this it's is going to burn. burn. My arms are out on the cross. That's I can remember yeah. this vividly. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, inside my arm is on fire. And I was like, oh my God, it's up in my chest. Yeah. And then, oh my God, it's in my, I'm on fire. Like, and now I'm asleep. <laughs> right. And then you're asleep. But I, that's what I remember thinking. Like, why do I feel like just my inside me. is on fire? Tell me, I'm going to feel like spicy. my insides are on fire. It's going to be spicy. Yeah, it's not spicy. It's going to feel warm. Yeah. No, it doesn't feel warm. It feels no, it like I'm literally on fire, on fire from the inside. It feels like you're ripping my veins out. Yep. Yeah. So, but anyways, it's, it's warm and spicy, yeah. and it, but it, it stings like a bee. But it's over in like literally seconds. Yes. And you it, can't even count to 10 and it's no, over. And it, anybody that's got Novocaine knows it burns like hell for 10 seconds and, and then, then it's it, numb. Then it's bliss. Yeah. Um, so then a thin hollow needle is then inserted between two lumbar vertebrae through the dura, which is the spinal membrane mm-hmm. and into the spinal canal. You will feel pressure during this. You should not feel pain. You will feel them pushing because they're literally pushing. They, on it. You really have to push. Um, the CSF pressure is measured. A small amount is taken out of the the small amount of the fluids taken out, and then they measure the pressure again to make sure everything's even. If they need to, they will inject fluid or meds into the um, spinal canal mm-hmm. to adjust the pressure. The needles then removed, and they bandage the puncture site. It takes about 30, 45 minutes. Um, you know, to find the space, it's to hard, get the space trying right. to get between your vertebrae right. to get in there, and it's not always easy. Um, the prep, the drape, you know, everything adds up. Um, don't participate in strenuous activities for the rest of the day. Take Tylenol for a headache or backache, and that's about it. And done. Done. One and done. But they'll take that fluid, analyze fluid it in the lab. a ton of information. It gives you everything you need to know. They'll know what you have. How to treat it. How to treat it. You, you need it done. I had an LP done when I had a migraine one time when I was, I was like 19 or 20. I had a severe migraine. Like I passed out. I was done. I had to go to the hospital and they were like, we have to do an LP because I think yeah. they were probably meningitis, meningitis or something. Yeah. Or maybe something else is going yeah. on up my brain, brain and they had to do it. It was not bad. Literally, I laid on my side. They did it. Took the fluid out. Done. Like so what the fuck was wrong with it? It was just a severe migraine. Like a wow. severe, severe migraine, but they wanted to, you know, make sure. But it's really not bad. I know. Well, my epidural, I just, it was the best thing ever. If yeah. I could have had the epidural from day one, I would have. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk a couple of people who have been through bacterial meningitis and survived. And then I'm going to give you seven tips for staying healthy in college, Laura. Oh, very basic common sense, but that's beside the point. Okay. We're going to talk about Carl. Boer. And I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but that's how I'm saying it. B-U-H-E-R. Boer. So it's an autumn day, 2003, and he comes down with a high fever, headache, nausea, vomiting, and exhaustion. Mm. His parents thought he had his flu because his football friends all had the flu. Oh. Mm -hmm. But when he became disoriented and he developed purple splotches all Mm. over his face and arms... They bring him to the doctor. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have waited to the point he got purple. I don't know. Maybe I would have because I'm always like, you're fine, you're, like, you're, you're fine. You have the fine. flu. Yeah. Oh, they all have the flu. You have the flu. So he had contracted meningococcal disease, bacterial meningitis, a rare but potentially deadly infection. 
It was so aggressive that he had to be airlifted to the Children's Hospital in Seattle and en route, he coded three Mm. times. Once hospitalized, they put him in a drug-induced coma for four weeks and treated him with 25 different medications to keep him going. And the high doses of antibiotics, uh, they're not enough. The fast-moving infection resulted in gangrene, and he lost both his feet and three fingers. In five months, he went from a strapping 185-pound football player to a 119-pound teenager. Oh, God. Do you know what sad Laura is? Um, he, at this time, is four years younger than my son, who's seven. He's three years younger. And my son is 119 pounds. Your son is very <laughs> skinny. This kid was 184 at 14. I mean, 185 at 14. And my son is uh, 119. Okay. <laughs> the seven operations for skin grafting and amputation were only the beginning for poor Cal. Uh, he had PT for years afterwards, mm-hmm. but just despite the hardships, his parents are not bitter. They want people to look on the experience not as a bad thing, but as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Before they got sick, they weren't aware of the vaccine that presented. Um, it was able to prevent the disease. Mm. They were not aware of the vaccine able to prevent the disease. Nor the, oh, they didn't know about a vaccine. They didn't even know about bacterial meningitis. Oh. Teens and young adults are at an increased risk for meningitis. 15% of all cases reported to the U.S. are from these ki- this age group. Yep. Certain lifestyle factors, as college dormitories, irregular sleep patterns, are thought to be part of the disease. Okay. So, um, today, Carl and his family are all very active in promoting vaccines mm-hmm. and awareness of the disease on college campuses. Uh, he During his treatment... His father became an internet research expert on facts and everything about the disease. The mother goes to um, the advisory committee on immunization practices uh, recommended by, and she goes on and speaks about how important it is Mm -hmm. to have the vaccine, um, the booster at age 16 and five doses, five. Oh, so you get the first dose at 11, five years. Like you said, she, she just reiterates all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So Carl says that his five month hospital say, he would wake up every morning saying, why am I still alive? He was tired of it, and he didn't like living like that. Yeah. Um, he felt like he had to persevere. He had an image in his mind of what he was and wanted to be. His physical therapy continued the most of high school, and he says it was a long haul, and everything took longer than he thought. The hardest part was learning how to walk again yeah. on no feet. With uh, foot prosthesis, he's learned a whole new pattern of how to walk. He credits his family's support. The biggest influence was definitely my mom. She was there every single day, which mm-hmm. as I would be as mm-hmm. well. Today, he's on track to get his bachelor's degree in civil engineering at Gonzaga University uh-huh. in Spokane, Washington. And in 2011, he plans to start a career designing roads and bridges. Nice. Uh, he had to adapt to the three-finger loss to his hands. He had to learn to type and write differently. He said, can I type and learn how to write again? No. Oh. Any of that. Just walking. Yeah. It's like, you're so, it must be so frustrating because you're like, I know how to do this. Right. And now I can't do it. Like and now it's, I have I, to start all over again. So frustrating. He had to learn to eat differently. Uh, he says learning to walk with the prosthesis was the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. He's not playing sports as he used to, which I would think would be difficult with. Maybe he could do some curling. Yeah. He could do the sweeping. Yeah. Um, He said the experience of having meningitis was a turning point for him. I realized what's important in life. It's important to be true to who you are. Stick to your morals. That's all anyone can ask. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's uh, pretty impressive for that age. Okay. Then we have another lovely young lady. 
I'm sorry. I'm not. You know what? It's the end of the summer. We're tired. We just. Good shit. We're just not where we should be. Okay. So forgive us. All right. So we're going to talk about Kyla Winters. So she says that a lot of times when she's on the street, because she's a bilateral amputee, people are asking her, thanking her for her service in the military. Oh, my God. And she's like, um, they stop prayer circles around her without <gasps> warning. And she said they assume that her injuries were unavoidable and that there was a bomb blast or a rare genetic order, disorder that took all of her fingers and her legs below the knee. Oh. But it wasn't. It was N meningitis, bacterial meningitis that poisoned her blood and prompted surgeons to amputate in 2009. Again before 2015 um had she received she says the inter uh the infection in the aftermath were preventable had she received the vaccine that is routinely recommended for college-age kids she likely would not be faced with so much pain in every door she opens and every step she takes okay i'm trying to see where she, she um she hopes to her story for those who are healthy they will see the Risks of foregoing vaccinations in rare conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm trying to find out. All right, so she was... I'm sorry, guys. I know you're going to kill me because I don't know where I'm starting here. All right, so she had <laughs> she had friends over. And she said, I realized... What's, when I realized what strain I got and when I realized it was meningitis C, I was so overwhelmed with grief that I could have prevented it. I could have had the vaccine, she says. Her saga began with a stiff neck after a night on the town with friends. That painful stiffness, which started overnight, had spread through her body by morning. Two of her girlfriends, thank God, had slept over, and they called 911, and the ambulance took her to Scripps Mercy Hospital. She doesn't remember the ride, and she doesn't remember the next two months. My God. Uh, many others do, including Dr. Gonzalo Balloon Landa, the infectious disease specialist, called in that morning on a report of a woman who had flu-like symptoms and severe pain, but whose tests had come back negative. By the time he arrived, she had begun to develop a full body rash. Oof. She was fucked. Looking at that rash, she was highly. He, the doctor was highly suspicious that um, Kyla had had meningococcal disease. Just from looking at her, he mm -hmm. knew it was going to be a bad case. The ER doctors administered a dose of broad spectrum antibiotics shortly after her arrival. Studies showed quick receipts of the antibiotic as a key factor in determining who decide. So I guess on how quickly she accepts these antibiotics, it's going to decide on if you're going to survive or not. So the next thing she knows, boom, the bottom had fallen out from under her. She had to be intubated. Her blood pressure went to zero. She had to be put on an enormous amount of life-sustaining medications. Her liver failed. Her kidneys failed. Her mm -hmm. heart failed. Everything failed. So she didn't like the antibiotics no. too much. That's how much of the... And that's how quick it It spread. multiplies. That's yeah. how quick. She went one night out with her friends. By the next night, she is intubated in her entire body's an organ mm -hmm. failure. Um, it goes into what the men did. Okay. At the severity of her infection increased and damaged her heart, her body's ability to keep her extremities supplied with oxygenated and blood reduced. So like Laura said, her body's going to worry about her heart. Does not give a shit about your limbs. Mm -mm. So um, the tissue became so damaged, she could only have amputations. She was in the ICU for six weeks. Ugh. Heavy pain medication kept her from being fully aware of exactly what was happening. She was not involved in the decision to amputate. But that's, they have to. Right, like I said, if you leave the dead limb on, it then releases that releases toxins that will also kill you. You right. have and to. You have to get also keep these people unconscious. You can't oh, be awake yeah. during this, no. um, which is you know it's just awful. Her identical twin, Liana Thompson, was in late pregnancy at the time, and she stayed by her twin side. She was the one that was helping the doctors. Like, yes, you need to amputate. That's another thing. Make sure your healthcare proxy is competent. Mm -hmm. When it was time for discharge. 
Her sister decided to move her family to San Diego where she could help her twin recuperate. Yeah. Twins is something. We yeah. should talk about twins someday. <laughs> so people sometimes ask her how she found the brave. Oh, so her sister, um, because everything fell down, wound up donating a kidney to the twin. Wow. She said, um, I felt like I was saving my own life. The thought of her not being in my world was just too devastating. So it was more important for her sister to gain independence over the... You know, she's like, you're going to get this transplant and that's it. Mm-hmm. So you see pictures of her sister learning to run on prosthetic legs and she's fully recovered, but no one sees... And they think she's fully recovered, mm-hmm. but no one sees her trying to get dressed in the morning or sitting down on the floor in the grocery store when her legs just hurt. Uh-huh. That would be me. I'm like, mm, fuck it, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. Give me a wheelchair. <laughs> what took an hour, like getting in the ready in the morning, today takes her two to three hours. Oh, God. Though she's made progress in walking and manipulating the world around her, her life remains too unpredictable to hold down a full-time job. She said sometimes the pain is sudden and sharp, located in her missing foot or calf, and other times it's more of a burning sensation. Living with so many amputations is a full-time job just trying to be independent. What's interesting today is they're starting to do stuff with the... um, So when you amputate, they just literally amputate off the nerve. Mm-hmm. They now take the ends of those nerves and they're putting them somewhere so the nerves recognize it and you don't feel the pain as much. Right. Which I, th- I mean, the stuff people are doing in medicine is fucking really. Yeah. So these are two people that have they been vaccinated and I'm not criticizing them because again, it's a newer vaccine that people are. Talking. Right. Like when we were, I never heard I of it. There was there wasn't one, and then I think it like gradually, but it was like oh, it's it wasn't like in the vaccine. Right. So I'm not criticizing realm, anybody because yeah. I don't think people were aware there was a meningococcal vaccine. For these types of things that will kill your kids, get them. Mm-hmm. And while you're at it, get the COVID vaccine. <laughs> okay, so um, that was Carl. We have seven tips for healthy on how to prevent your kid going off to college, mucking it up with all the guys at the frat, and mm-hmm. then getting bacterial meningitis yeah. or drinking bong water and getting bacterial meningitis. Ugh. Number one tip. Number one tip, Laura. Wash your hands. Get vaccinated. Oh, get vaccinated. Fucking get vaccinated. Okay? Mm -hmm. Fucking get vaccinated. Okay. Just get it for them. They're going. You don't know. They're not clean. Just do it. Right. So, lesson number two, clean your living space. (laughs) They're not Especially now. Clean your living space. Keep all of your shit, your toothbrush, your face stuff, everything that you're going to put in your mouth when you clean yourself at night, keep it separate away from everybody else. Take it out to brush your teeth. Put it back away. Lysol, bleach wipes, yes. like that caddy yes. everybody has with all your shit. You have to clean the caddy. Yes. Like, I swear to God, my mother still makes fun of like she didn't like live with other people's dirt. I'm like, I did it. I couldn't disgusting. live with other people's dirt. It was disgusting. It's disgusting. So clean the living space. Get into the good habits of washing everything down. Doorknobs, keyboards, the mouse, the key- high touch areas, high, high touch, touch areas, areas. <laughs> during winter. Crack the windows in the dorm rooms yes. and get fresh air in there. I mean, most of these dorm rooms are a million degrees all fucking year. Mm-hmm. You're not paying the heat. Yeah, crack, crack the goddamn window. windows and get some fresh air in there. Um, get dust, the dander, and all the. I mean, you're you're shedding while you're sleeping. All so the goddamn. Change your start. sheets. Other people start. Yes. So you're you're sharing dander with the four other people in yeah. the room. Change the fucking sheets dust the room every week shake your little stupid shag rugs out yeah shake out your all those pillows on your bed yes i see these beds these girls have they have 45 pillows that are all that 
It would look like I was in the Marine Corps. It'd be tucked in, (laughs) bouncing a quarter, nothing on my bed but a goddamn blanket and a pillow. That'd be washed every week. All right? All that shit is just going to hold on to everybody else's skin cells. All that cute little stuffed animals and your little comforters and your body pillows. I mean, looks adorable. (laughs) Trap for all this bacteria. All that dander that your roommate's shedding while you're sleeping. And all that hair. Yep. It's getting caught up in there. So just... Clean it. And other sneezing-inducing particles that might be in that room. Uh, it can be, what does it say? It's although it can be cringing to spend hard-earned money on things like basic cleaning supplies and a vacuum, <laughs> the necessities will pay dividends in keeping your living sp- space clean and healthy. Yep. Again, I guess I'm not really upset. I didn't live in a dorm. <sighs> oh God, it was I, other people's dorm. I can't all live this in other is, people's dorm. All this is emphasizing is my daughter probably will never go off to college either. <laughs> okay, get eight hours of sleep every night, you dumbass dorm kids who are up. <laughs> I'm going to stay an all-nighter with my no-dose so I can study for my biology exam tomorrow. It's not that hard to get through college. I fucking did it. All right? I did it working. You can do it, too. I did it working what I'm doing now. Like, yeah. you can do it. You don't need to pull an all-nighter. How about if you just stay on track instead of drinking every fucking night? You won't have to worry yeah, that you just, have Just you do, like, study. a half-hour day in each class. So like, it says, yeah, I mean, oh, I know. stay active throughout the day. Though ex- and exercise, walk, and play a sport. Mm-hmm. Turn off all screens one hour before going to bed yes. so that you're not zoning out to the screen at night. Set an alarm at night to notify you when it's time to get ready for bed. Nobody's going to do this, but I'm going to tell you what I need. I, ha- I have a thing, and it's that, like, it's on my phone because, you know, I can't sleep. Yeah. So it goes like, you know that baby's like, da na na Yeah. <laughs> it literally plays that at, like, midnight, like, Laura, oh, start going to bed. <laughs> like, well, okay, put your little baby lullabies yeah. on to make you go to bed. Minimize your intake of caffeine and stimulants during the evening and afternoon hours. So stop drinking your three shots of espresso somewhere probably around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. At least. Read, draw, meditate, do yoga, or experiment with other ways to help turn off your mind as you approach sleep, all without your digital screens. Mm-hmm. For most college students, there is no excuse for not getting seven to eight hours of quality sleep each night. They are right. I'm sorry that yeah. there isn't any excuse. Especially some of them don't even have classes till 11 o'clock right. in the morning. It all comes down to being disciplined, staying healthy, and other aspects of your life, and knowing when it's time to unplug and check out. Mm-hmm. You know, these kids are away from home for the first time, and they just freaking go hog wild. Yeah. So exercise and keep active, because if you're exercising during the day, you're going to get tired at night, mm-hmm. and you're not going to put on that freshman 15. Eat whole food meals and snacks. All right, look it. I know these kids are never going to do that. Your parents paid $4,000 for the meal plan. Go and get your dinners. Eat right. Don't have 400 packs of ramen noodles in your dorm like I did. Um, I didn't have a dorm, but when I lived away, I lived off a ramen. Have a party strategy. Social gatherings, sporting events, dance parties, and other forms of nightlife make up for the liberations that come along with being a college student. Mm-hmm. Going out on the weekends can both be fun and entertaining and give you bacterial meningitis. <laughs> I, did, I added that. Thank mm. you. But there's often a turning point of when it can be unhealthy. Mm. So call it a night 11 instead of 1. Oh, That's never going to happen. That is never happening. No, don't do that. Drinking more water to stay hydrated. All I said to my kids was like, look, it, don't have four drinks in an hour. Okay, just space them out. Yeah. And I know none of them are going to be water. Um... Be smart about who you socialize with and use your intuition to avoid situations where you feel unsafe or un- that situations that are also unlit. The impact of staying out late itself can have negative repercussions? repercussions on sleep, health, mental clarity, and overall energy. So immunity. Like if you're exhausted, you're going to pick up every goddamn mm-hmm. disease that everybody around you has. So 
have a party strategy. All right. Stay hydrated. Drink, drink, drink your water. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to drink it at night, drink it all day. Yeah. And I think that is all I have to say. So okay. just be safe. Your kids are all going off to college. And teach them how to be safe. Teach them how to be smart. They're making decisions on their own for the first time in their lives, usually. Mm -hmm. Teach them how to make smart decisions. Yeah. And get them vaccinated. In case I haven't said it before. Get them vaccinated. They're not going to make smart decisions. Right. Most of them. Right. So Hopefully if, they don't if make you get them the vaccine, at least ones. they'll have a little Backup. coverage. Yeah. So when they make the poor decision, hopefully they, they won't, won't get sick. They won't lose their arms sick. and legs right. over it. Um, so on that note, mm -hmm. don't let them come home. They have to stick it out till December. They <laughs> make them, them cry. Make them cry. It's the best thing you're going to do for them. Don't let them come home. They have to finish at least one semester. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. <laughs> Words of wisdom. Some scrubs. Enjoy the fall weather. Leaves should be churning. Pumpkin's out. Apple crisp is coming. Pumpkin is out. I know. I can't wait. All right. So enjoy and we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Like, subscribe, rate, and review. The Scissors and Scrubs podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scissors and Scrubs. And email us any of your stories or thoughts to scissorsandscrubs at gmail.com.